for you to turn to Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah chapter 13. And uh, it is my desire, hopefully, to get through this whole chapter tonight. So we're going to work with abandon here. Jeremiah 13. Before we start, I wanted to remind you all to keep praying for uh, little Matthew, who uh, went down to... um, MD Anderson this week. We haven't heard from him today, so we're still waiting for some news. But uh, he was having a um, uh, a series of tests and all uh, to uh, prepare to remove a tumor that he has. He's seven years old, and he has a brain tumor. So um, we're just uh, wanting to keep him in prayer so that uh, the Lord will certainly heal him and remove this this tumor. Uh, So keep Matthew in your prayers. Why don't we pray for him tonight, and then we'll read our text and get right into our study. Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to gather in your precious name and to read and study your word tonight. We pray, Father, that it not only is food to our hungry hearts and spirits, to our minds and to our souls, but Lord, to uh, be our refreshment as well. Though these are very heavy passages in Jeremiah, we, we need to realize, Lord, how, how much you care and how much you love your people. I pray, Father, that we'll be um, serious and mindful and watchful in, in these things as we look at them tonight. We want to lift up little Matthew to you. We pray, Father, for your continued protection and care and and comfort uh, to him, Lord, as he prepares to have this particular uh, procedure done to remove this tumor from his brain. And uh, we know, Lord, that the doctors here were not able to because of where that tumor lies. So, Lord, with whatever they choose to do, you we place him in your hands. We know that you're able to not only shrink this tumor, but you're able to remove it. And we trust that you would do that in your way. So we commit uh, Matthew and his family to you tonight as they continue to wait for you to do a great work. And these things, Father, tonight we ask in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Jeremiah 13. Let me read down through verse 7 to begin. Excuse me. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and get yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I got a sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, Take the sash that you acquired which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it, and there was the sash, ruined. It was profitable for nothing. In other words, it was good for nothing. You know, if you're a parent, you understand what lengths you have to go to get a child or a teen to... Respond to your oral instructions. Yes? Okay. (laughs) How many times are instructions given only to fall on deaf ears? What happens then? 
What do you have to do? Well, you might get louder, right? <laughs> maybe you get in their face. You might have to stand in front of the TV or maybe snap their headphones over their ears or, or act out with hand signals uh, short of grabbing them by the nape of the neck and aiming them and <laughs> in the right direction, all because they haven't responded to your simple words of instruction and warning. And Israel is no different. And Judah, they were no different than your kids when it came to the Lord speaking to them about their sinful condition and, and their need to repent and to do what was right. God would speak to them through the prophets. At one time they said, do everything you say God will do, will do. And they never did it. But then they began to get hard and harder and hardest in their hearts to the point that even when the prophets would say, this is what God wants you to do, they would turn their back and reject the Lord. And so God would often send a prophet to the people performing some symbolic act to get their attention. Isaiah did it. Isaiah did it for three years in Isaiah chapter three. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter twenty, verses one through four. Let me read that passage so you can see what he had to do. It says, "In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, and even though this is affecting some of the enemies of Israel, nonetheless, it is still something that is done. So Israel will have, or uh, Judah at that point would uh, be uh, attentive to what God is saying." <clears throat> so it says, "In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon the king of Assyria sent him." And he fought against Ashdod and took it. At the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. This is what the prophet had to do. I mean, see, that, that's radical, isn't it? And then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. This is PG-13 here. But that's the prophet. God says, Isaiah, take off your clothes and show them what I'm going to do. The prophet has to be obedient. You know, and off he goes. In Ezekiel chapter 4, the prophet was to draw the city of Jerusalem on the, on the brick, or on a brick, I should say. And so he would draw the city of, Is, uh, of Jerusalem on a large stone or brick. And then he was to break that brick to show that the city was going to be destroyed. Ezekiel then was to take an iron pan and put it between himself and this picture of Jerusalem, which he had made to show that God had put a wall between himself and the city of Jerusalem. Do you see what he has to do to get the people to wake up and to, to say, this is what God is doing. I've told you he was going to do this, but now I have to show you what he's going to do. Following all of that, Ezekiel then lay on his side 390 days. And then on his right side for 40 days. To signify the number of years respectively, the northern and southern kingdoms would be punished for their iniquities. The northern kingdom for 390, day, for 390 years. The southern kingdom for 40 years. Interesting, isn't it? What God has to do to get the attention of his people. Jeremiah would perform more of these symbolic acts later on under the, the instructions of the Lord. And we'll see those as we move on through the book of Jeremiah. But primarily to confront the people of Judah with the polluting effect of their associations and the consequences from them. In other words, all their associations with, let's say, Egypt and Babylon and Assyria brought into their midst these idols that they now began to worship. And so God is trying to get their attention that this is polluting their worship of him. And so in chapter 13, the instruction from the Lord was to purchase a linen undergarment. Well, we've already seen Isaiah with exposed buttocks, so we're just going to call this underwear. The Lord tells Jeremiah to take this underwear or this undergarment and to take it to a certain river and hide it in the crevice of a rock. But he's supposed to wear it without cleaning it. 
Now you're, you're probably starting to think, you get back to our kids again. No, I'm just kidding. He says, don't wash this. Wear it, wear it, wear it. Don't take it off. Don't wash it. Don't even let water touch it. I want to tell you, go and go bury it. Close to the certain river, hide it in the crevice of this rock. Now there's some question as to which river this is. Although in the King James and New King James Version we read the word Euphrates, probably in some other translations as well. But the question comes up with the word that uh, is given to us in Hebrew, which is the word perat, which can refer to either a local river by that name. There was a river not far from uh, Anathoth, which is the, the hometown of, of Jeremiah. Uh, this was about four miles northeast of, of uh, Anathoth, was this river named Perat. Uh, so it could refer to that. And uh, it could either refer to that or to the Euphrates River, the real Euphrates River, which was 350 miles away from Jerusalem. And of course there are arguments on both sides. If it's just north of Anathoth, then the, the children of Judah would be able to observe what Jeremiah's symbolic actions were all about. And the similarity of the name to the Euphrates would remind them of the army that was to destroy them. So that, that's, uh, that's a thought. That, that might be exactly what had happened. He didn't have to travel so far. But it's interesting that others believe that he honestly did travel that far. That if he traveled the nearly 1,400 miles to and from Euphrates to bury the undergarment and then to go back to Jerusalem and then to go back to take it out and bring it back to Jerusalem, the impression would have been made of the place to where they would eventually be taken captive. And it isn't foreign to our minds once we read the book of Jeremiah completely that Jeremiah would have some dealings in the city of, of, uh, or at least in the nation of, of Babylon. And we'll get to that, of course, much later down the road. But, uh, but nonetheless, it would almost seem as the Lord would say, go all the way there to Euphrates, because to the Euphrates, because that's where they're going to go. That's where they're going to end up because of their sin. That's where they're going to be because of their disobedience and their rebellion against God. And the prophet has to act us out all the way. Either way, the picture that was being drawn was, was just full and pregnant of meaning here, you see. I want to go back and read this section again, and, and then I'm going to add to it the uh, interpretation of, of this particular act. It says, Thus said the Lord to me, Go, go and get yourself a linen sash, Put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So I got the sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And, and the word of the Lord came to me the second time saying, Take the sash that you acquired, which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a hole in the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the sash from the place where I had hidden it, and there was the sash, ruined. It was profitable for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, verse 9, Thus says the Lord, in this manner, now get this, in this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts, I've asked you to remember that particular phrase a number of times already. But I ask you once again, because I want to show you again where this comes from. But he says, the, This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man. So I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory, but they would not hear. You see, being that it was this linen undergarment, it was to be worn next to the skin. Being that it was linen, linen being a cloth that was that was primarily for the priests. 
is another indication of how close God wanted His people to Him. That it was not to touch water or to be cleaned in any way signified this uncleanness and it signified a defilement. And so the picture being drawn here by the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah is that God had brought the nation close to Himself and yet they defiled themselves with their idol worship and they became good for nothing. Now that lesson, folks, is for our day and time too. And it's not to be withheld from the church. That once we begin to worship other gods, though we may say we love the Lord and we serve the Lord or we come to church or we, you know, we go through the motions as it were. But if we say we worship God but yet we're worshiping other things and other idols, we are good for nothing. Good for nothing. Profitable for nothing. Certainly, if any people at all uh, saw Jeremiah bury the garment under a rock in the muddy river, they knew that it would ruin the garment. But they didn't realize that they were passing judgment on themselves. That that garment was about them. It was about their sin. It was about their disregard for the things of God. It was about their refusal to honor God and God alone. There's something else about this sash or this undergarment, what some translations call a girdle, not the kind of girdle people wear today. But it's something that girds. A girdle or an undergarment of that type, both in the Old Testament as well as in Jesus' time, was a, sig- uh, was, was a symbol of service. It signified service. A sash always signified service. Think of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. Jesus himself said, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And he's dealing with the issue of service and serving until the Lord comes. He says, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Those who are girded for service of of the Lord until the day of Christ, when Jesus comes for his people, for his church, He will turn right around and He will gird Himself to serve us. Because we've been faithful to serve Him. Folks, that's a blessing that you can look forward to if you serve the Lord. It's a blessing you can look forward to if you gird yourself right now while you're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. And serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Serve the Lord... And serve God's people. Think about what Jesus himself did right before he goes to the cross. In John 13 verses 3 through 5. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. And that he had come from God and was going to God. Rose from the supper. Or rose from supper and he laid aside his garments. And he took a towel and he girded himself. Jesus did this. And there's a sense, you know, we always talk about how, how, how Jesus took that role of, of, of that, that the, the person of the home should have done in greeting the people coming into his home to wash their feet. But there's something that we need to also see here, that there's that, situ, that, there's that, that, that image of, of humiliation, to take off your garments. Remember Isaiah having to take off his garments to show the humiliation. And he takes off his garments and he girds himself. So there's that dual sense of of all that Jesus was going to do on the cross for his people. He took the humiliation for us. But he girded himself to serve us. And it says, he took a towel and he girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet 
and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. The towel surrounded the waist. You know, when we talk about the heart, or we talk about, you know, actually, you know, when you read the scriptures, you, you realize that the heart is, is not as deep as God wants to be in our lives. It, it, it almost, there's almost a sense of getting down to the very kidneys. That's way back there. You know, so getting dip, in deeper with us, you know, that God wants to have that intimacy with us. Some people even kind of call it the guts, you know, wants to get right in there, you know. That's how deep it is. And to be girded there in that area is to say, this is how close I want you to be with me. J. Vernon McGee comments on this in regards to the passage in, in Jeremiah, going back to, to the, what we were studying. He, he says, he, the great servant, speaking of Jesus, was preparing them for service by washing their feet so they could have fellowship with him. For if you don't have fellowship with him, you can't serve. Service is fellowship with Christ. It is not teaching a Sunday school class, singing a solo, or preaching a sermon. Service is fellowship with Christ. It is being cleansed and used for what He wants to do. God doesn't use dirty cups or dirty vessels. Do you see now the picture of the dirty sash? It was ruined. It was stuck in the mud and in a crevice of a rock to show the, how, how ruined they had become. They had become good for nothing because they had gone to worship idols rather than to worship the one true and living God. And the people of Judah, who had been pure, by the way, and untarnished at the time of their call, if you go all the way back to chapter 2 of Jeremiah, you see this. They would be just as worthless as Jeremiah's ruined undergarment Because they had refused to listen to the Lord. Now go to Deuteronomy 29. Go to Deuteronomy 29. You know, you go back to the law, you go back to one of the five books of Moses, as as, as Moses is giving them all of these things prophetically, pointing to these times that we're looking at in the prophets. But how interesting, listen carefully to what is said in Deuteronomy 29, verses 17 through 19. And you saw their abominations, he says, and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart. There's that phrase again. Going all the way back to Moses. Going all the way back to the law. Pointing all the way down the road. Hundreds of years. And, and, and commenting on this very attitude in Judah in the time of Jeremiah. I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my own heart. I shall be blessed even though I'm following my own way and not God's way. I shall be cared for even though I don't listen to God and I choose my way rather than His way. That's pride. They became prideful because they believed what the false prophets were telling them. Don't listen to Jeremiah. Don't listen to these prophets Don't listen to Isaiah and Habakkuk and and Zechariah. Don't don't listen to the Hosea and Joel. Don't listen to them. 
They're out there by themselves. Look at all of us here. We're in agreement. Well, let all the people know God wants to bless you. What's the message today from many pulpits? God just wants to bless you. No matter what you are, no matter what you think. Just come as you are, stay as you are. No. First of all, we don't mind you coming as you are, but I don't want you to stay as you are. And God doesn't want you to stay as you are. You come as you are and you realize I'm a sinner and let's lay those sins down. Let's lay those things down that have caused us to be separated from God. And let's trust in the blood of Jesus Christ and on the cross of Jesus Christ to take care of those sins. And in the work of Jesus Christ. But pride gets in the way, you see. It gets in the way of our relationship with the Lord, our fellowship with the Lord. And and we need to remember to humble ourselves. Thinking back again to Luke, this time chapter 18, Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. And Jesus speaks a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Well, what, what is that? That's pride. Self-righteousness. And this is, the, this is the parable that Jesus gave them. Verse 10 of Luke chapter 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself. And I, I tell you what, I've always liked, I like that little phrase. Because it tells us exactly that he's not praying to God, he's praying to himself. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. What would we call that? That's boasting, isn't it? Now, verse 13, and the tax collector standing afar off. And when I taught this in, in the Gospel of Luke a couple of years ago, I, I, I kept looking at this thing and I kept thinking, you know, the Pharisee said this tax collector as if he was near. Yet the, the, the text tells us the tax collector standing afar off. And I thought, you know what, I bet you he was still near physically, but he was far off spiritually from that Pharisee. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if you read the Greek carefully, you realize that what he says is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, as if he was the only one that had sinned before God. And I tell you, Jesus said, I tell you, this man... This tax collector, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. There are a lot of people in the church exalting themselves today. Jesus says, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I don't want to be humbled on the last day. That's more humiliation than it is humility. I'd rather that we all be humble now before God. That He might exalt us in due season. You see, we face a choice. Do we humble ourselves before the Lord? So he can use us again? Or is he going to have to humble us because we've exalted ourselves? Is he going to have to humble us? In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes in verses 5 and 6, he says, first of all, he says, Likewise, younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. So, young people, listen. But it's this next phrase that we want to look at. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. 
Well, the children of Judah and Israel as well, but the children of Judah had, had prided themselves. In a sense, they were living in denial. And if you've ever had to deal with people that live in denial, it's, a, it's really a painful thing to see because they just won't believe what they have obviously in front of them. And so next came a proverb now in our text, going back to Jeremiah. A proverb and a parable of the wineskins. In verses 12 through 14, it says, Therefore you shall speak to them this word. God tells Jeremiah, Speak to them this word. Thus saith the, God, the Lord God of Israel, <clears throat> Every bottle shall be filled with wine. That's the parable. Every bottle shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, Do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? And then you shall say to them, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land. Here's, here's, the, here's the parable. The proverb was first, every bottle should be filled with wine. Now the parable. Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord, I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but will destroy them. It's a tremendous picture here. If we're looking at wineskins, that's what they normally would put uh, wine to ferment it. But if you put it into bottles, if you put it into some kind of a, of a, of a container of some sort, other than the wineskins themselves then it would be as if those containers were bumping into each other and breaking because of the clashing that they were doing. So Jeremiah now is commanded here by the Lord to offer the children of Judah a familiar proverb. It was familiar to them as his text. He said, every bottle or wine shall be filled with wine. Now, there is an American proverb similar to this. And many of you may know it. Maybe Many of you may not know it. But it's a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. How many of you have ever heard that? Oh, man, I can't believe it. Only just three of us did. Five of us. Seven of us. A chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. You know what that was? This was Herbert Hoover's campaign slogan for his 1928 presidential bid claiming that everyone would be prosperous under a Hoover presidency. A chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Well, I don't think I have to tell you all what happened in 1929. I think that gives us a little bit of a picture of the boast that was given. Every bottle shall be filled with wine. And what was their response? Oh, we know. You don't have to tell us. We're going to be prosperous. The proverb Jeremiah used expressed the assurance that there would be peace and prosperity for the nation. But with a broken heart, the prophet saw the leaders getting drunk when they should have been soberly seeking the Lord. And he knew that the cup of wrath was about to be poured out on the land. Now, It's interesting that the people responded back to Jeremiah saying, Oh, of course they'll be filled. The prophets have spoken of that. That is the false prophets. We are going to be prosperous and no judgment is coming to us. No judgment is coming upon us. We will be at peace and we will be prosperous. And Jeremiah, you need to realize that. You see, the Lord wasn't speaking about filling the wineskins with wine, but the people with drunkenness. Why that picture? Well, first of all, because his theme was judgment and not prosperity. His theme was judgment, not prosperity. They had become intoxicated with idolatry and real wine as well, I'm sure. And as drunkards, they would not be able to defend themselves in the critical hour of invasion that was sure to come. 
And now years have gone by that Jeremiah has been giving them this prophecy under the direction of the Lord. And so a final plea and a warning is given to them. Listen to verses 15 through 17. Let's go on. Hear and give ear. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before He causes darkness. Stop for just a moment. What is the prophet saying? He's saying God will be merciful if you will repent. God will be merciful if you will turn from your wicked ways, if you'll turn from your prideful ways, if you'll turn from your idolatrous ways. God will have mercy on you. Listen to what he's saying. Hear and give ear. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God because, or I should say, before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you are looking for light, he turns it into the shadow of death and makes it dense darkness. You think it's dark now, it's going to get darker. But if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. God had given them His light and they rejected it. That's the simple truth here. God had given them His light and they rejected it. And therefore, darkness would come upon them. The point that God is making is that if you are not faithful to the light that you have, if you're not faithful to what the Lord has given you, then He will remove that light and you will find yourself stumbling in the darkness. Now this happens sometimes. When we take our eyes off of the Lord, God is doing everything He can by the power of His Holy Spirit to convict us of a sin, to tell us you're going the wrong direction. I don't want you to go that way. And we get, we get what? Prideful. We get... Stubborn, like that mule that we've talked about many times, the, the stiff-necked animal that goes against the one pulling it. That's us. And God is over here doing all He can to get our attention, and then eventually we find ourselves in darkness, and then we're stumbling, trying to find the light problem is we're stumbling because we're not looking up to the source of the light. We're not looking up to the source of the light. We're looking down, looking around. Sometimes looking for help here and there, but we're not looking to Him. I want you to consider the conditions when the day of the Lord occurs, because, you know, all of the prophecies that we deal with in the, in the near context, you know, in the near fulfillment of them, we always talk about a far fulfillment, right? So Israel has to go through all of this again, in essence. But with that in mind, I want you to consider the day of the Lord, that awesome day of the Lord. When I say awesome, I'm not just talking about, oh, that's cool, but awesome in the sense that it's going to be dreadful. Because the day of the Lord is a dreadful day. The day of Christ is His day to come for His church. The day of the Lord is a dreadful day. Ezekiel 30, verse 3, first of all. It says, For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of the Gentiles. A day of clouds is significant because it's talking about a day when it's cloudy and you can't see the light. It looks like day, but you can't see the light. Was there ever another time that it was like that? How about the day that Jesus was on the cross? For three hours, there was no light. In the daytime, in the middle of the day. That, that's ominous, isn't it? Joel chapter 2 verse 2 speaks of the day of the Lord as a day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A day of darkness, you see. Amos 5, verses 18 through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Boy, this, this is a powerful passage. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. 
That, that is kind of, let me, let me interject here, that that is kind of like the people of Judah in the time of Jeremiah saying, listen, we, we're going to be at peace and prosperous. So let the day come. But when God sends the day, it's a day of judgment. You understand, the hard attitude is so important here. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. See, if you understand what the day of the Lord is, you're not going to desire it. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light, he says. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. <laughs> Turn around, oh, there's a lion here. Yeah. Ah, whoo, there it is, bear. <laughs> Boom, bye. Or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. You either have to be completely blind, or you can't see why, because it's dark. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? The intensity of the darkness? Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. The great day of the Lord is near, it is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. I think we're getting a pretty good picture here of the day of the Lord. A day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. We've experienced some problems with high towers recently, haven't we? I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse, a dung heap. That's a pretty dreary scene that we've just read about. Devastation, desolation. We wouldn't have thought about that back in the 50s after, the world, after World War II. Until when? Until the Soviet Union began to rise up. And then all of a sudden, back in the 60s, we were going into uh, prevention mode, you know. What was it? The, uh, worried about the, the bomb and stuff. And so we had shelters we had to go into and, and whatnot. Teaching us how to sit under, you know, get under a desk, which, like the desk is going to really stop things. But if you've seen Indiana Jones, you realize if you get into a refrigerator, you'll be all right. That's pretty crazy. Now, we should have asked him all along how to escape, you know, these problems. Some people will deny that the Lord Jesus is yet to come or that, you know, we don't have to deal with the fact that there's, you know, the Israel that's there is not really the Israel that the Bible is talking about and, and, they, and, and that Jesus really has already come, that the, we're actually living in the millennium. Folks, I'm telling you things that people are believing that are not true. There's a lot of stuff still in the scriptures that are being fulfilled right now and are yet to be fulfilled until the day of Christ. And I mention this because of what Paul says in this statement I want to read to you in a moment. I want you to listen to the words of Paul because he's using the very same imagery in admonishing the church to be ready for the Lord's return. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of be marking some of these things out so you can see them. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that, notice, the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord. Notice in verse 3, for when they say, peace and safety, it's a boast, folks. Peace and safety. Stop and think, just for a moment, and I'm not trying to be political here, just stop and think for just a moment. We've had one presidency that has been attacked constantly for eight years, maligned, didn't have a perfect presidency, made a lot of mistakes. Still, I think that our present president is, has got some things that he needs to get right about Israel he hasn't done yet and, that, and the Middle East conflict. But, you know, nonetheless, 
you know, there's been all of this attack. I was listening to somebody talking about the fact that in one of his uh, inaugural uh, parades that they were, they were people actually throwing things at the car and stuff and, and whatnot. But today, you don't hear that. There's a new presidency coming. There are a lot of people that are looking at the president-elect who's going to be inaugurated next week. They're looking at him as if he's a messiah. Folks, he's not the messiah. Please understand. This is not the time to start crying peace and safety. Because a person, a human being right now, cannot be the Messiah. There's only one. And we're waiting for him to come back. That's Jesus Christ. Please understand that. Please understand that. So people are going to cry peace and safety. But then it says sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. We've talked about that laboring many times. It says, and they shall not escape, but you, brethren, speaking to the church, you, brethren, are not in darkness. You see all these references to things that we've already read about tonight? But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Oh, what does that mean? Well, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other, edify one another, just as you also are doing. How significant are those same words being given to us by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament to the church to be ready, to be watching, and to be sober. Why? Because we're not of the darkness and we're not like those who get drunk in the night and cannot see the light and cannot find their way and eventually stumble. So let's take a moment then to look at the heart of Jeremiah here because this is of utmost importance before we close out tonight. And we've got just a few more things to say here. But Jeremiah 7, uh, 13 verse 17. I want to focus on this just for a little bit. But if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. Jeremiah speaking to his own people now from his heart. He says, if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. You know, we've already a couple of times, the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, a couple of times the Lord has already told Jeremiah, don't pray for the people. Don't pray for them. But do you notice where his heart is? His heart is toward his people. And he weeps over them because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion, and because of the judgment that's going to come upon them. Here is another significant statement and reason that Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Because his heart was broken for the people that wouldn't wake up and turn around. Down through the ages, passionate men like Richard Baxter and Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, D.L. Moody, Robert Mary McShane, wept for the souls of the lost, even in their preaching. Baxter himself wrote, he wrote something very interesting. He said, should not thou weep over such a people and should not thy tears inter uh, interrupt thy words? To signify, you know, you're telling lost people to get right with God. Should not thy tears interrupt thy words? You know, when I read that the first time, I actually read it, I misread it. And I, what I read was, should not, thy, should not thou weep over such a people, and should not thy tears interpret thy words? And when I thought about it, I thought, you know what? Those statements are both right. Should not thy tears interpret thy words? Should not your tears interpret the fact that you care enough to tell people about Jesus Christ and that they get right with God? 
And that was the heart of Jeremiah. Well, we need to move on because of time. Verses 18 through 20. Now God says to Jeremiah to say to the king and to the queen mother, Humble yourself, sit down, for your, rule, for your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. The cities of the south shall be shut up, and no one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it, it shall be wholly carried away captive. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given to you, your beautiful sheep? Where's the flock? King? Where's the flock, queen mother? You see, Jeremiah wept as he saw the Lord's flock being taken captive as sheep, heading for slaughter. And this great tragedy was caused by the rulers of Judah selfishly exploiting the sheep and refusing to obey the word of God. Now, more than likely, the king and the queen mother mentioned here were Jehoiakim and his mother Nehushta, the widow of Jehoiakim, the father of Jehoiakim. Second Kings chapter 24 kind of aligns that for us. Uh, verses 8 and 9. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of uh, Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father, Jehoiakim, had done. So, that's probably who it's speaking about. And uh, Jeremiah exhorted them to repent and to humble themselves in light of the coming exile, but they refused to listen, you see. Now remember this, the king of Israel, or the king of Judah, but the king of Israel needed to be the, the person who led his people spiritually before God. While the northern kingdom had completely left God, so none of the northern kingdom kings were, were good. But in the southern kingdom, there were good kings and bad kings. And this just happened to be the bad king here who wouldn't listen to God. But they should have led their people to God and to God alone, not to the idols of their, of their neighbors who would later become their enemies. So pride goes before destruction, doesn't it? That's what Proverbs 16 verse 18 says. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit an arrogant spirit goes before a fall. Pride goes before destruction. And pride was the very thing that we began with at the beginning of this chapter. What God was dealing with these people. Pride. The next verse in our text speaks of a woman in travail. As Paul, remember, mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 5 as well. What will you say when he punishes you? You have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pangs seize you like a woman in labor? Peace and safety, they will cry. And then sudden destruction comes as a woman in childbirth. Suddenly the pain starts. This image of suffering is usually associated with judgment. The message is simply this. The people you sought as allies will come and be your masters. Then what will you say? You will be so gripped with pain <clears throat> that you won't be able to say anything. Instead of trusting in the Lord and His prophet Jeremiah, they had trusted in Babylon, and now Babylon will turn out to be their enemy. Verses 22 and 23 says, And if you say in your heart, Why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered, your heels made bare. That was a humiliation, folks. That was what Isaiah, if you remember earlier on, had to go through as a humiliation. Nakedness. Can the, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots, then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, turn from your evil and begin to do good. You know, it's hard to believe that these people were living in rebellion against God and they didn't have a clue why this was all coming upon them. 
It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to believe. They're living and rebelling against God, and yet they don't have a clue. They say, why have these things come upon us? They were indeed blind to their sin. I think that's a problem, a big problem in a lot of people in the church today. Part of that problem is because they've been told, oh, it's okay, God will forgive you. Don't worry about it. What used to be, don't worry about it, God will forgive you, is now, don't worry about it. You're already saved. That's bad counsel. You see, God never stopped being a holy God. God has never stopped being a righteous God and a just God. Time and again we say that when God is mentioned in the scriptures, He's a God of love, He's a God of righteousness and of truth. But if He is anything three times, He is holy, holy, holy. You know, we're given indication in verse 22 that the Babylonians were a ruthless people who had no laws in treating captives in a decent manner. And as for an Ethiopian not being able to change his skin color or a leopard his spots, the point being made is that it is impossible for sinners to become righteous without God intervening. Without God's intervention, man cannot save himself or change himself. If Jesus Christ has not come to this earth to be the Lamb of God, to take upon Himself the sins of the world, we are without hope. Because no man will be able to save himself. No man can be able to save himself. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Somebody once said this, We first make our habits... And then our habits make us. We first make our habits. Then our habits make us. What kind of habits do you have? If you've made habits that are not good, that are unholy, that are perverted, that are disgraceful, then your habits will make you. So we encourage you always, let your habits be those things that will honor and praise God. Get up early in the morning and seek the face of God. Make it a habit. Get up early and read God's word. Make it a habit. And even late at night, if you have to, wherever it is, but don't let other habits make you. Lastly, verses 24 through 27, Therefore I will scatter them like stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. This is your lot, the portion of your measures from me, says the Lord, because you have forgotten me. And trusted in falsehood. And therefore I will uncover your skirts over your face that your shame may appear. I have seen your adulteries and your lustful neighings. The lewdness of your harlotry. Your abominations on the hills and the fields. Boy, that sounds like pornography today, doesn't it? Woe to you, O Jerusalem. Will you still not be made clean? Because of their chronic and incurable sinning, the Lord would scatter the people from their land like straw blown by the wind. And like the straw, they would end up in desert lands, namely Babylon. But it is God himself who would be responsible for Jerusalem's humiliation. Her citizens had acted and behaved like adulterers. You know what it says? It says like adulterers and like, it says your lustful names. They, like, they were like adulterers and like horses in heat. That's a heavy-duty picture, folks. The Lord had seen their unfaithful, lewd behavior toward Him when they worshipped idols and they practiced sacred prostitution in the open-air shrines across the land. 
And Jerusalem was in big trouble with the Lord. How long would she remain in her wicked ways and stay unclean? You see, you, you didn't find it a problem to expose yourself to each other in all of your, in all of your idolatrous, idolatrous practices. So now when Babylon comes to take you captive, now they make you a shameful picture. With what you thought was okay, now it's your humiliation. Oh, folks, we've got to guard our hearts and we've got to guard our eyes from the things of this world. There's so much junk, so much junk out in the world. Coming into our homes, through the Internet, through TV. You know that you, you can't even just get basic cable anymore without there being pornography on it. And it's just sad. Because the spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. And one moment of just saying, you know what, I'm going to be careful. It's destructive. Don't let it become your humiliation, folks. Give it up. Jesus Christ tonight. Has the Lord not been patient with his people? God, he's been so patient. Through all of our studies and in the book of Jeremiah up to this point, God has been so patient. Yet he keeps telling them, this is going to happen unless you repent. Well, God already knew they wouldn't repent. But it doesn't keep God from being patient with us, even us. I want to close with 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Because Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance not willing that any should perish. You see, once again, I have to tell you, God didn't come here to bring death. He came to bring life. When He created all things, He created life. It's the enemy, it's the flesh, it's the world that creates death. People want to blame God for everything. God, why did you do this? Why did you do that? I didn't create hell for you. I created hell for the devil and his angels. I'm not sending you to hell. You're sending yourself You see, that's the judgment we saw in this passage when the parable was given. You thought your, 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 your bottles were going to be filled. But that was judgment. You judged yourself. Time and again, you'll see that. God's message in the, in the law, in the books of Moses, the five books of Moses, the Torah, the very central passage is choose life. God says choose life. Because I came to give life. Choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, I'll serve the Lord because He is life. God is patient. But there's a day that Jesus said, I'm coming. I'm coming. Be ready. I could come at any moment. And you know what? He's, his coming is closer now than it's ever been. I was ready for the Lord to come in the, in the 70s. Yes! Come on! 
70s passed, 80s, I still said, Lord, any day. 90s came, Lord, any day. There were some people I knew, they said, uh, you know, I used to think that, but now, oh, I keep looking up because he said he's coming. Now it's a new century. We're in the 21st century, and guess what? Lord Jesus, I can't wait till you come. So come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's the word Maranatha in, in the book of Revelation. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But are you going to say that if you're not ready? You've got to be ready. You've got to be ready. That's why you have to pray. That's why you have to get right every day with God. We used to have a bumper sticker. Man, I'm going on now, but hold on. I've got to stop here. But we used to have a bumper sticker. He used to say, get right or get left. Do you understand what it says? Get right or get left. Because Jesus is coming for his church. He's going to take his church. So don't get left behind. Now you know what that series is about. But years ago, before that series was even written, get right or get left. Well, I want to get right. Even though I'm left-handed, I want to get right. So, yeah. You understand? I don't want anybody left here. I want us to go home. Let's pray.